we know that you cause everything to work together for good. God, it's easy to say, so hard to understand when devastating things like this happen, and yet, Lord, we know that it's a result of a fallen world, a world that was messed up when, when our forefathers, when Adam and Eve made the choice to turn this place over to Satan. And, but Lord, I pray that it, even as you've promised where sin abounds, grace will much more abound. Lord, address this issue in a way that allows the gospel to come forth clearly. God, I pray that you will strengthen those people who are working on the relief efforts, that you would provide for them all that they need to be able to bring some relief. And Lord, I pray that relief will be seen as being in the name of Jesus Christ. So please just, Lord, help these people, comfort the afflicted, heal the sick, protect people from catching the diseases and everything that are in the water. And, and Lord, I pray that you would turn this awful thing into an opportunity for you to receive glory and for people to understand who you are, Lord. So just bring relief by your spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's turn now to John chapter 11. As we're moving through the gospel of John. In John 11, the first part of the, well, the majority of the chapter is, is about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And we're not going to go through the whole story again because I think we covered it um, fairly well on Sunday morning, at least as well as I'm capable of covering. And, and uh, so if you missed that part, uh, the story of Jesus bringing, raising Lazarus from the dead, go ahead and pick up the CD if you weren't here on Sunday, and, and you can go over that if you want to have a complete treatment of this chapter. After Jesus showed who he was, showed that, in fact, he is the resurrection and the life, that it's belief in him that makes all the difference in the world and all the difference for eternity. He demonstrated it, he taught it, and then he proved who he was by bringing Lazarus from the dead. <clears throat> now in verse 45, it says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. That is, they, those who came from Jerusalem to come to Bethany to help mourn. There were a lot of people who had come just to help. They just did that. They'd get a lot of people together and cry together. And many of them, when they saw Lazarus was risen from the dead, they believed in Jesus. But some of them, amazingly, apparently didn't believe in Jesus and went to rat him out instead. And they went away to the Pharisees and told them the things Jesus did. It's funny how... God can do something and the reaction to it can be so varied. It can either be praise God, look at how good God is, or it can be here's an opportunity to be divisive. Here's an opportunity to be a weasel and stir things up. And so there were people who had that reaction. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. See, they were in a precarious position. The Jewish leaders were sort of rulers over Israel, and yet the Romans were ultimately in charge. Um, but the Jews who ruled were ruling at the behest of the Mormons. The, uh, Mormons. <laughs> the, the, 
the Romans. So the Mormons were running. Yeah. But they had to kiss up to the Romans in order to make sure that they stayed in power. And the Romans, anything that would seem to be rebellious or any kind of movement that might look like there's a challenge to the empire, well, they wouldn't put up with it. And so the Jews were concerned because if Jesus caused too much of a stir, as raising people from the dead could often do, then uh, their position would be jeopardized. And of course, also, here he, Jesus is teaching the law. He's teaching words from God. He's sharing with them things that are critical for people to know. And that was their job. And they were threatened because they could end up being obsolete by Jesus coming in with this new interpretation, new understanding of the Scripture. And so they were threatened. Well, they had already been, been uh, thinking about and plotting and planning on killing Jesus. They didn't like the fact that he kept saying he was God. That upset them. But in addition to that, they were threatened by the charisma that he had, the works that he did, they couldn't duplicate the things that he was doing. They couldn't duplicate the kind of teaching that he did. Even when he was a kid and he was there in the temple and, and he began to talk to people, they were amazed at w the things that were coming out of his mouth. Well, now he's, he's in his 30s and every time he spoke, people gathered around and they were saying, I've never heard anyone teach quite like this. And so they were very threatened by him. But look at verse 49, and this is one of the, where God has a sense of humor. One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest that year, said to them, so Caiaphas, the high priest, pipes up and just says, you know, out of his, out of his mouth comes this, you know nothing at all to these Jewish leaders, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Basically, this guy comes up with the gospel. He goes, you guys don't know what you're doing. Don't you realize it makes more sense for one man to die for everyone than for all of us to just end up dying? Now, Caiaphas, you'd go, wow, he must have become a Christian at that point. No, God just spoke through him. And as we see here, he didn't say this on his own. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So the Lord just put these words in the mouth of Caiaphas, and, and Caiaphas ends up telling all of his buddies, you guys don't know what you're talking about, which would include him in that, saying he didn't know what he was talking about either, but... Jesus is going to die for the world, is what God revealed through Caiaphas. And so it says, uh, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. They go, man, this is too weird. We've got to kill this guy. Now he's got our high priest talking about him. And so they planned to kill him at that point. And uh, therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim or Ephron, and there remained with his disciples. Now you think, a guy who can raise people from the dead, he's God in the flesh, why does he kind of sneak off and go hide out? 
I mean, he didn't have to come to Jerusalem in the first place. He didn't have to come the last time he came. He didn't have to come to Bethany. And yet here now, it's time for him to just go and hang out somewhere for a while. Why? Well, because Jesus knew the day and the time that he would be offered up for death. It was important for it to happen according to God's timing. And God's timing was very specific about this. It says that the Passover was about to happen. Well, Jesus is the Passover lamb. The whole ceremony of the Passover was about him. It was all a picture of what he would do. And so how in the world could you manipulate people to kill you on the Passover? But in fact, that's what had been prophesied and that's what was going to happen. If Jesus had hung around here for a few days, they probably would have killed him prematurely and it would have messed up all of the prophecy. It would have broken the picture. And God's really serious about fulfilling his prophecies precisely and maintaining the standards that he's trying to teach. It's why Moses never got to enter into the promised land until the Mount of Transfiguration. Because when he was told to speak to the rock, that previously he had struck the rock, water came out. This time he was supposed to speak to the rock. Why? Because the Bible tells us the rock was Jesus. And he would only be struck once. And after that, all you'd have to do is speak to him and living water would flow forth. Well, Moses struck the rock again, twice, yelled at the people and God said, you messed up that which I wanted to do. The picture that I was trying to paint, you goofed it up. And as a result, you can't enter the promised land. This is a very serious thing that you've done. Well, in the same way, Jesus here is being very careful, very meticulous in making sure that he's given it just the right time. That his death would happen in the afternoon on the Passover Three o'clock in the afternoon, right when the Passover lamb would be killed, that's when he would be killed. But not only that, as we'll see in the next chapter, the day that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey had also been prophesied. And so he hung out there in Ephron or Ephraim for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves, to go through the rituals that would precede the Passover then they sought Jesus and spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think, that he'll not come to the feast? The people were talking, and here they're looking to him as the Messiah. And they're thinking, man, Passover, this is a perfect time for him to be revealed. And in fact, as you lead up to the Passover, hey, that's when this will be a good thing that he's going to do. But do you think he's going to show up? He's going to get killed. See, they were looking for him to come back and take over. Their perspective was when the Messiah comes, he'll proclaim himself king. And in fact, he'll be placed on the throne. And they were just ripe for that to happen. They wanted it to happen. And so they're going, you don't think he's not going to even show up, do you? Now, both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it that they might seize him. So there was a warrant out for his arrest. Then six days before the Passover, so just in the last week before he would die, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. And Martha served, as Martha always did. But Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary, 
the, the sister of, of Martha and Lazarus, took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So Jesus is there sitting at the table, kind of reclining as they would do. They would sit or lay on the floor. They had a low table, and he was there, no doubt most of the disciples sitting at the table with him. Lazarus, Martha's in the kitchen doing the catering, and Mary comes out with this bottle of expensive cologne, expensive perfume. It was so valuable, and Judas, no doubt, gave an accurate appraisal of it. He probably knew just what it would sell for on eBay. And he basically said, this stuff, you could get a year's salary if you just sold this. So it was very valuable. And we know from other historical records that things like this would be incredibly valuable. And here she is, she's dumping it on Jesus and, and just worshiping him in a seemingly kind of wasteful way. And so Judas, who was the accountant for the disciples, I do think it's kind of interesting, and it shows something about the priorities of Jesus. We have a tendency to think that, boy, to steal Jesus' money, that would be like the worst thing going. Judas was stealing his money. Jesus knew it. He still left him in charge of the money. See, I don't think that money is the most valuable thing to God. God has a lot to say about money because it's so important to us. And how we handle our money shows where our heart is, where your treasure is. There will your heart be also. But God's treasure is not money. His treasure is people. And I think it's ironic that he allowed this to go on. It shows that that money in the, in the till wasn't as important to him as it would be to us. Often we feel that Man, if somebody steals from God, oh, that's the worst thing you could do. And yet at the same time, we absolutely take for granted when people hurt people, when people are wounded as a result of the unkindness or the sin of, of even us. And we can look down our nose at that one who would rip off God. And yet there we are messing with those that he treasures those that he values so much. It's, it's an indication of really the priorities of Jesus, that this wasn't something that he even stepped in and took over for. It's hardly mentioned. Most of the Gospels don't mention it, but John does here, and not as a way of castigating Judas. Judas was going to be plenty guilty for betraying the Lord, but it was just because Judas objected to the worship of Mary Mary worshiping Jesus, but John just points out he really didn't care about the money. He didn't really care about the poor. What he cared about was himself because he was cashing in on this. For Judas, the ministry up until that point was all about what he could get out of it. He was a professional. And in those days, the tax collectors would make their money by skimming off the top. Accountants would tend to do the same 
And so that's just what he was doing. But he didn't value people. He pretended to, oh, the poor, the poor, the poor. Jesus goes, you don't get it. What she's doing is so important. People will be talking about it thousands of years from now. It's for my death. My death is everything. You guys have no concept of how important this is. She has a, a clue because here she's pouring this valuable ointment, this valuable perfume on me because she values me more than ointment. And the question always for all of us is, what do we value more than Jesus? What is it that we're willing to give up, that we're willing to sacrifice because he's worth it? It's what worship is all about, really. It's a sacrifice. The Bible talks about our sacrifices of praise. I was talking with the kids the other day in the high school group about worship and how the word worship, the English word, comes from an old English word, worship. And the way you worship determines what you believe that God is really worth. So if we sit there and don't worship at all, we just kind of mumble the words or we don't pay attention or our mind is off somewhere else, we're showing that we really don't think he's worth the sacrifice that it takes for us to worship him. That's a huge thing. Because if our whole life is to be presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service of worship, then how we worship is important because it shows how valuable he is. And basically what Jesus is saying in a, in a gentle way is, look, yeah, there are poor people out there. There always will be poor people out there. But I'm about to go. I'm about to die. I'm actually worth more than all of them. I'm actually worth more than a bottle of, of nice-smelling perfume. And for us, it brings up that picture. What's, he's worth, what's he worth to us? Do we see worship as just an opportunity to be late for church and not miss anything? Do we see worship as something that we just do, a, you know, half an hour, an hour a week at the most in groups of people, but we don't ever worship privately with God? We don't ever spend that time with Him? If that's the case, then that's what He's worth. And you can talk all you want about how much you love Him, but ultimately, what you're willing to sacrifice speaks volumes of what you believe he's worth. And she was willing to sacrifice something that was important. For us to sacrifice, it might just mean letting the person in front of us hear how badly we sing. And we go, oh, I don't want to do that because I don't want them to know. I, sorry, you know, maybe the cost of worshiping God is letting people know that you can't sing very well. It might be some other sacrifice, but the fact is, he's worth it. Whatever it is that we give to him, he's worth it. I think it's kind of funny when people always want to know, what's the bare minimum that they can tithe and get away with it? Do you have to tithe on your gross or on your net? Do you have to tithe on just your accumulated profits? Or do you... I get this question all the time. It reminds me of a used to know a guy who several of us would go out to eat. And, you know, usually you throw your money in the middle and it's, there's generally enough to pay. Although when I coached softball, every time I took the girls out to eat, they all threw money in. And I, my hamburger ended up costing me like 40 or 50 bucks every time. 
But there was this guy, he would, as soon as we'd start throwing money in, he'd pull out this little change purse, one of those little squeezy deals, and he'd like start counting out his change. Of course, like everyone who does this, they don't count their drink, they don't count tax, they don't count a tip, but it's just like, I just felt like going, just put your change away, I'll pay for you, you cheapskate. But I think a lot of times, that's the way we are with the Lord. Okay, how much do we really need to give him? How much time do we really need to devote to him? How much money should we give him? Um, how much worship is he really entitled to? How much time in prayer do we really have to give? And by having that mentality, we already show he's not worth much to us. We're just trying to do the bare minimum. What a horrible thing to, to say for someone who has given everything for us. So Mary understood this in a way that probably no one else around there did. Sometimes I think that churches get into a mentality of running them like businesses. And the idea is to be as efficient as we can be. Now, around here, we don't have a lot of money to throw around, I have to tell you. But at the same time, sometimes we might do things that could seem to be not a smart deal. To offer money to help somebody that we wonder whether they're really deserving of it or something like that. And many of us have been in that position personally, and sometimes the church gets in that position. Remember this, the whole idea isn't to make sure that we waste as little as possible. Here, Mary is absolutely commended for actually being wasteful. And sometimes there might be things that God calls us to do that are a bad deal, but he just wants us to do them. He wants us to, on spec, offer an opportunity to him to show him how much he's worth to us, even though it may not pay off. There are some things that we do personally, corporately, that may not pay off, but it's not about just the bottom line. It's about obeying God, showing him what he is worth, pouring ourselves out for him. And so that's what Mary did, and it's just a wonderful picture of devotion and of the fact that somehow she had a sense that it was just about over for Jesus. Now, it wouldn't take a, an incredible prophet to realize this. Everyone knew there's a, there's a warrant out for his arrest. They want him dead. Passover is nearing. And, and so certainly she could kind of figure this out on her own. But the disciples seemed to not have that sense that she had. This might be it. How would you treat the people that you know if you knew that tonight was the last time you were going to see them? How many times have we lost someone that we love and just wished we could have been with them one more time to really tell them what they're worth to us, how much they matter to us, what they mean to us? And so often we miss those opportunities until sometimes it's too late. I'm convinced it's one of the blessings of people who get sick and, and kind of hang on in the hospital for a while and don't just die immediately. You look at it and you just say, boy, God, why don't you just take them home? Well, partly I think God has them hang around sometime for a little while so that we can express those things that we would want to express to them. It's the, those, our loved ones, ministry to us. Losing someone suddenly is really, is rough. It's the best for the person who dies. I mean, when I die, I'd love to die quickly for me. Just go to sleep and not wake up, just wake up in heaven, that would be great. But I know if I end up getting sick and, and it takes me a while to die and people are starting to think, man, Dave, are you ever going to die? Then I'll realize that God has me in that spot because he wants to let other people prepare for it.
people who love me to get sick of me. And so that's kind of, Mary had that sense. She had that, that uh, understanding that, that Jesus was about to go. Now a great many of the Jews knew that he was there and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. A lot of looky-loos. The chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death also. How are you going to do that? The guy's already been dead, you know, but they figured, let's kill him again. It might take this time. Because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. And it's really hard to tell people, oh, no, Jesus is nothing. He's a big phony. Yeah, but he just raised somebody from the dead. Yeah, true, but still, you know. A lot of people can do that. Oh, really? And so their idea was, we need to get rid of Jesus, but we better bump off Lazarus too because he's talking too much. The next day, see, this momentum was building, the support of the people. They're believing. They're coming from Jerusalem. They're going, man, this guy, maybe he is the Messiah. He raises people from the dead. And so the next day, it says that a great multitude that had come to the feast They had come to town for the Passover when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. The triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, It happened on the day, four days before the Passover, when normally the Jews would pick a lamb at this point. They would come to town with their lamb, but the idea is they needed a few days to examine the lamb and make sure that it was was just without spot or blemish. At this point, they would bring the lamb into their house if they lived in Jerusalem and watch it very carefully. It, It did two things. They would know that the lamb was qualified for sacrifice they would also get kind of attached to the lamb like it was a pet so that when that lamb was killed, they would be struck with the the horror, the awfulness of what sin really is. And so now Jesus presents himself. He's going to be examined for the next few days as the Passover lamb would be. As he rode into Jerusalem, the people began to wave palm branches and, and cry out, Hosanna! This had, of course, been prophesied by Zechariah, but, but more than that, the palm branches, the reason for the palm branches, it goes back a couple hundred years before this, when the Jews had been enslaved this time to the Syrians. The Syrians were evil. The Syrians had a, a ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was awful. Antiochus Epiphanes had gone into the Holy of Holies, sacrificed a pig there in the Holy of Holies, forced the the priests, the Jewish priests, to drink of the blood of pigs. Just an awful thing. A tyrant, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian ruler. Well, out of that, in in, uh, about 200 years before Jesus would die, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus who who organized with his family primarily guerrilla warfare to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes. And in fact, they were able to kill him and to overthrow the Syrians. And the Jews were again able to cleanse their temple and to maintain some sort of autonomy until the Romans would ultimately take over. Well, when Judas Maccabeus 
ended up leading successfully this revolt, the people spontaneously grabbed palm leaves and were waving them at him because he had delivered them from the tyranny of Syria. And so now, 200 years later, what they were saying was the same kind of thing. They were saying, look, in the same way that Judas Maccabeus delivered us from the Syrians, you're the Messiah. You can deliver us from the Romans. And so, saying, Hosanna, save now, they meant it. Save now. This is the time. Come on, let's go for it. And so, they, would, they were praising him and, and calling out that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God. You know from the other Gospels that the Jewish leaders were freaking out, telling them to be quiet. And he said, look, if they didn't cry out, the rocks would cry out. But at the same time, it was this time as he was approaching Jerusalem. He was there on the Mount of Olives heading down that path that leads to the east gate of Jerusalem. That as he looked over the city, though the people ahead of him were cheering and hooping it up, he was weeping and looking at Jerusalem and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, oh, how I long to gather you. Like a hen gathers her chicks, but... But you wouldn't. You didn't realize this is the day of your visitation. This is the day that had been prophesied. I'm being offered to you and you don't get it. All you want is somebody who will feed you, who will raise people from the dead, work miracles and deliver you from the Romans. But you have a, pro a problem much bigger than, than your, the tyranny of the Romans. You've got a sin problem and you don't understand it. The day that he rode into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, four days before he would be killed on the Passover, it had been prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9 that when the declaration goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, this is during the Babylonian captivity, and from the day that this, this decree would go out until the coming of Messiah the Prince, his presentation, that it would be 69 times seven years, 483 years. And if you get the day when Artaxerxes passed down that declaration to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, and you count 483 years to the day, 173,880 days, it comes to this very day as the 10th of Nisan as, as in 32 AD when Jesus Christ was offered. It was just the right time. It was the time he was waiting for. He knew what was happening. And yet their concept at that time was save now. Come on, do it now. And today people are still sort of confused by this. They still believe that somehow we're supposed to take over the world. There's a whole vast amount of Christians who believe kingdom now theology, dominion theology. They really believe that we're supposed to take over this world. So they put a huge emphasis on political power. They put a huge emphasis on you need to get out and rock the vote for Jesus because this is what they believe. This is why they're doing what they're doing. It's why Pat Robertson ran for president. He really believed that somehow that was going to be used for Jesus to usher in his kingdom. But it's a misunderstanding he said, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not about coming here and taking over, over militarily because it's about death, and he's going to go on later in the chapter to really emphasize that. It's not about me beating up Romans. It's about us dealing with the sin that's in your life. It's about me offering myself ultimately as a sacrifice. And so 
they didn't get it. They didn't understand. They wanted them to save now, and it just didn't happen that way. And today, if we have that same mentality, we'll be mistaken in the same way. Now, there were rabbinical teachings, by the way, in those days that when the Messiah would come, that he would come riding victoriously on a white horse unless the children of Israel weren't ready for Messiah. And, and the rabbis said that if they weren't ready, then he would come riding on a donkey. Interesting, they weren't ready. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But the thing the rabbis didn't understand, and the thing that these Jews in those days didn't understand, and going, wait, the Messiah is supposed to come and rule, they didn't understand that there were two comings of the Messiah. First one on a donkey, second one riding a white horse in victory. And so, again, because the two events are referred to um, in juxtaposition in the Old Testament prophecy, the, area, the era of the church was a mystery, something that hadn't been revealed at that time. Now we look back and we understand completely. A part of the prophecy was to be fulfilled at the first coming and the rest of it at the second coming. And so it says in verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. They didn't understand the disciples at the time. Often it's hard to understand what God's doing while he's doing it. Even it's difficult to understand prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. And yet with 2020 hindsight, you look back and say, wow, that was pretty clear. Oh, there are some in every generation that understand, but his disciples in those days were among those who really didn't get it until later. And, you know, it's also interesting that finally when Jesus was glorified, it all made sense. And that's true for us today as well. When Jesus is glorified, when we see him for who he is, everything else makes sense. Jesus is the key to understanding all of Scripture. If you start thinking that a lot of Scripture isn't about Jesus, you get confused. But if you understand that it's all about Him, even as He, told the, he taught the disciples that He met there on the Emmaus Road, He took them through the Bible from Moses and the prophets to show that it was all about Him. And then they said how our hearts burned within us as He spoke to us from the Word. So they got it later. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him because they heard that he had done this sign. So a lot of people are gathering around. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, you see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, man, we're not getting anywhere. The world has gone after him. Now there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Some Gentiles who just were interested in Judaism, perhaps they had converted already or perhaps they were just dabbling in it, but these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Philip is an interesting character. It seemed like his main thing was bringing people to Jesus. He's the one who brought Peter to Jesus. He's the one when Jesus fed the 5,000, he brought the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes to Jesus. And here he's bringing these Gentiles and saying, you've got to see him for yourself. And so Philip came, told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them saying, and this is a weird answer, 
these Gentiles want to see Jesus. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Kind of, again, a strange response to people who just wanted to meet him. But in a way, it's very appropriate. Because in these four verses here, Jesus kind of sums up what he's all about. It's really, if you understand these verses, it's the key to life. It's the key to having a walk with the Lord. It's the key to understanding life as we know it, as we don't understand it, getting his perspective. It's critical. Now, the Greeks later, the Gentiles, would certainly be ushered in and become the predominant people who would believe in Jesus Christ in a very short time. These Greeks at this point were probably just looking for miracles, looking for information. But Jesus used the occasion to say, let me explain some things to you. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, how should the Son of Man be glorified? It was going to happen through his death, him dying. And he's saying, the time is coming. And then he says, you know, I'm telling you, if a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, if it doesn't do that, it's just a grain of wheat. But if it dies, it produces much grain. This image of a grain of wheat. You know, if you, if you take a stalk of wheat, there are a lot of grains of wheat on it. And if you just let it sit, it'll die, it'll harden, it'll just be a nice decoration. But if you take even one of those seeds and you plant it, more wheat grows up. And from that, more wheat and more wheat. But what happens is, when the seed is planted into the ground, and Jesus uses this, or Paul uses this same picture when he talks about um, death and resurrection. But unless it goes into the ground and dies, it can't really live. It can't really become what it's supposed to be. Within that grain of wheat is all everything genetically that you need to have a whole world full of wheat. But... It has to die for that to happen. And the connection, the analogy is pretty obvious to us. Unless Jesus would be put in the ground and die, all he could do is heal people, do miracles, do a lot of great teaching. But what we needed the most, he couldn't do for us. He couldn't save us unless he was willing to die. And yet, and it says over in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to see him crushed because he would see his seed prolong his days. Pleasure of the Lord would prosper in his hand. And he would see the travail of his soul and be satisfied, for by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he'll bear their iniquities. And, and so Jesus is here saying beforehand, there's something that you need to understand about me. I'm going to have to die like a, like a grain of wheat. If I don't die, then you won't live. If I don't die, no one lives. But if I die, a lot of good is going to come from it. But then he makes the application to us, and, and this is what is so critical for us to understand after we know the gospel. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says a lot of things that are disturbing. 
And this is one of them. And he says it in a lot of different ways. He says the first will be last and the last will be first. He says, if you want to follow me, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Again and again, he, he stresses this. And here in this verse, it's if you love your life, you're going to lose it. And if you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. Now, he doesn't mean you need to hate life. It doesn't mean you need to hate yourself. But what he's talking about is in the same way that he had to die in order for life to come forth, he's saying, you also need to die to yourself. There needs to be death going on in you or life won't result. One of the strongest drives that we typically have, and there are some people who don't seem to have this drive, but one of the strongest drives that most people have is the drive of self-preservation. We want to keep ourselves alive. We can do incredible things in order to keep ourselves alive. Again, some people just don't have that at all. Pastor Chuck's younger brother, youngest brother, Bill, um, was one that they said they never saw him ever afraid of anything. He loved to race cars, race motorcycles. He'd get up, stand up on the seat of the motorcycle and go racing by their house yelling. He, 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 was, he was absolutely fearless, loved to get in fights. Just he, he was really, something was missing in him. He had no um, self-preservation drive. He ended up dying in a plane crash, flying on a night when there's no way that he should have been flying, and Chuck's dad was with him, and they were both, they both went to be with the Lord at that point. But I've sat around and heard all the stories about him, and I just think, wow, that's amazing. But for most of us, we want to live, and we'll do a lot in order to try to live. Now, there are some people who get so lied to by Satan that they take their own life. They don't want to live anymore. It's the ultimate lie. And yet, at the same time, Jesus says, look, following me means being willing to die, being willing to be on a cross, being willing to be planted, humbling yourself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Paul said in Philippians 2, as he humbled himself even to the point of death. And so for us as well, we will never understand fellowship with God until we experience the fellowship of his suffering until we're willing to die to ourselves. Because as long as our primary motivation is self-preservation, then he'll go to places that we don't want to go. He'll call us to take risks that we don't want to take, and we'll just stay behind. We'll just go, no, nah, that's okay. It's not for me. It's too risky, too dangerous. People will think I'm crazy. And so we hold back on that which he's calling us to do. If you knew that you couldn't die, if you knew that you were indestructible, how different would your life be? How different would your level of commitment to the Lord be if you realized that you were indestructible? Well, you're indestructible. Jesus, as he told, told Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me will never die. Do you believe this? And he says the same to us. Now, it changes the way we look at life because I am called to die daily. I am called to take up my cross. And so those things that I get so tripped out about, those things that I get so worried and concerned about, those areas of life that don't seem to cooperate with my vision of life, if, if they give me a hard time, it's because I'm not willing to die. Because what if doing the right thing kills you? 
Well, what if? He says, if you're planted, you're going to grow up so much better, so much more complete. And I'm convinced that this is something that as Christians, we absolutely have to get a grip on if we are going to live lives in fellowship with him. Because every time life starts to hurt us a little bit, every time it costs us, every time it makes us wonder or be miserable, we act like something weird is happening. And Jesus said, take up your cross, deny yourself. In other words, it's not about you. It isn't, you don't interpret all of reality based on what's good for you. When we do that, we'll miss his program for our lives completely. I've known people that God had called to minister, and yet it just didn't make sense to them. They didn't really want to do it. They didn't really feel like they could afford it. For whatever reason, they just resisted the call of God, put themselves ahead of God's will. If you do that, you just miss out horribly. And I've seen people whose lives amounted to nothing that I'm convinced God could have really used them, but, you know, they just weren't willing to pay the price. Jesus showed us by going first. And he said, I'm going to die. But he said, it's the same thing for you. If there are things that you're going to hang on to more than me, if, there are, if you're going to fight for your own self-preservation, you can't follow me. You've got to look at life and say, I don't matter. My reputation isn't what's important. My creature comfort isn't what I'm living for. That which makes sense to me or that which will cause people to adore me, that's not the point. I'm called to die. So if I'm doing what God tells me to do and it kills me, well, don't be surprised. It often does. Literally or figuratively, it's just killing us. And yet, that's what we're called to do. And if we don't understand that, we won't understand life. We can't love our life more than we love him or we're completely off track. And then he goes on and says, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. Follow me no matter where I go. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So we know that God will honor us if we come to the understanding that it's okay if we die, that it's okay if we're uncomfortable, if it's okay if we feel humiliated or, or put down by others, that it's all right to go through a time of discomfort, pain, and yeah, even death if it takes that, that's what it costs to follow him. Take up your cross daily. And then he says, if you follow me, God's going to glorify you. God is going to lift you up, even as in that passage in Philippians 2, where it says that Jesus humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross. And then it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And God wants to exalt you and exalt me too. But the price of it might be our life. The price of it may be our comfort. The price of it is going to be, I can't look out for number one. I can't just think about myself. I need to be willing to pour myself out, be planted, be killed if that's what's necessary. And if we do that and follow him completely in that way, then he says, stick with me and my father will glorify you. 
But right after this, here in verse 27, he says, Now, my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Jesus wasn't just giving platitudes. He wasn't just like saying, Yep, you know, you need to be willing to die. And then going, But I don't even mind it. I love the fact that he was honest enough to say, Yeah, I know I'm called to die. I know some of you are called to die. And it's great. We should just rejoice in it. No, he goes, man, I'm telling you the truth. This is killing me. But this isn't easy. This isn't something that I just go skipping on down to Calvary and go, come on, nail me. Whatever it is, you know, I'm happy to do it. No, not at all. We see someone who was just going, this is tough. Later, we'll see him in the Garden of Gethsemane just sweating drops of blood because of the difficulty of what he knew he had to do. And so he said, and it's okay if we say, God, is there a way out of this? Oh, there are so many times when I get in the middle of something that hurts and I just go, God, is there a way you can bail me out here? Can I just back up a little bit? Can I just go back in a time machine a ways and, and just change some decisions that I've made because I get in the valley of the shadow of death and I just think, man, how did I get here? And yet Jesus, even feeling that way himself, yet he said, no. He goes, for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. So he's wrestled with it like we do, but he made that choice. No, God, you've got me here. I know what I have to do, and I'm going to do it. And in this prayer of commitment, then a voice came from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The voice of the Father. This was at least the third time that we know that the voice of the Father came down the first time was when Jesus was being baptized. Second time was when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration there with his, some of his disciples and Moses and Elijah showed up. And now this time, as he's agonizing over that which the Father had called him to do and as he's praying and committing himself to that. Now, also it's interesting, each one of those events was really about his death. Baptism is the image of being buried and, and rising again. Not only that, on the Mount of Transfiguration, it says as he was talking to Moses and Elijah, they were talking about his death that was coming. And here, as he's talking about his death again, the revelation of the voice of God. There's a lesson here for us. When we're going through difficult times and we're continuously committing ourselves to that which we know God has called us to do, even if it kills us, then be paying attention, be listening, because we'll often hear the voice of God in those dark, difficult times. Of course, also, he was praying at the time. And it's amazing, if you pray, how often you'll hear from God while you're praying. We think of prayer as being us talking to God, but so often, the truth is, God will talk to us in our prayers as well. Now, when you tell people that God is talking to you, they may think you're nuts. Especially if you tell them that God is telling you to do something that's going to cost you or that's going to be painful to you or that's going to be difficult for you or that doesn't add up or make sense. 
You say, you know, I believe that God's called me to do this, and they'll go, ah, oh, no way, it couldn't be God. Same thing happens here. Voice comes from heaven, therefore the people who stood by and heard it, they said it had been thunder. Did you hear that? Yeah, I think it was thunder. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. See, they didn't understand, they didn't get it, that, that God the Father was talking to him. And sometimes when he's talking to you, they won't get it either. But you hear his voice, and you know he doesn't call us to a life of ease. I think that one of the, one of the biggest mistakes in the church, in Christianity today, is the idea that somehow if we're really following God, it's really going to work really well. We're going to be successful. We're going to be blessed. A lot of people will be touched. We'll make a lot of money. We'll have a lot of stuff. I don't see that in the scripture. I don't see that being promised. And in fact, the opposite is so often true. He just told them, you may have to die. I'm going to. And sometimes when you do things that God tells you to do, people won't believe it because it just looks like it doesn't make sense. But all you have to do is know that God's telling you that. You have people who go off and, you know, I think of some of the families that have left our church and gone off to start other churches. You look at it and you go, um, boy, I don't know, I hope this works out. And we expect right away that their lives will just be incredibly blessed. And instead what we see sometimes is that their assets are dwindling and times are tough. And, and so it's easy for us to then question, see, you know, I don't think God was really in it. But when did God ever say that following him would mean that life would be easy? He says quite the opposite many, many times. And we can't judge God's leading or his voice based on what other people think or what makes sense or what works. The truth is, when we decide that Christianity is something that's all about 10 steps for this or six steps for that or how you can have a great and wonderful and happy life or a great marriage or when you boil Christianity down to something practical like that, it's just wrong. You're going to be teaching something that the Bible doesn't teach. The Bible teaches, you know what, you have a big job to do. You need to die to yourself. You need to be willing to let go of everything so that you'll understand how much he matters, so that the Father can glorify you. Don't second-guess God when God's speaking to you. Follow what he leads you to do. And if it looks like it's tough, if it looks like it's painful, if it looks like it's not working, that's a good indication that you heard right. It really is. And so, again... The people stood by, didn't get it. And Jesus answered and said, This voice didn't come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, he said, the voice was for you. And he goes, here's the thing. It's time for sin to be judged. Now, if we were to proclaim something like that, I think we'd say it by pointing our finger, by putting a lot of resonance in the voice. It's time for you sinners to be judged. What was he talking about? Yeah, it was time for judgment. The judgment was on him. It was time for him to pay the price for sin. No person on the face of this earth is going to pay the penalty for their own sin. They can't do it. 
I don't care if it's Hitler. I don't care if it's some mass murderer, Osama bin Laden, or anyone else. They will never pay their debt to society. And neither will we. You can choose to neglect and reject Jesus Christ and, and go die, and you will not, your sin won't be being judged when you die. Your sin was judged on Jesus Christ. He took it all. Now, if you end up being condemned, it's because you're choosing to be condemned yourself. He said, I don't condemn you. But if you want to be condemned, okay. But there'll only be one sin that sends people to hell. And that's the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. Going to hell doesn't make up for all the horrible things that you've done. It's, frankly, you're not worth that much to pay for your own sins, even to pay for a part of them. Jesus paid for them. And so, as he said, judgment of this world, it's time. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Satan will be defeated. On the cross, he was beaten. He was defeated. He was overthrown at that point. Now, it's taking a period of time before Jesus actually comes back in that 70th week of Daniel and takes that scroll that represents the title deed to the earth and actually brings this about. But it was all paid for back then. And Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all people to myself. I don't like the songs that people sing that use this verse lift Jesus higher and things like that. This isn't talking about promoting him. It's talking about him being lifted up on the cross. And, and so, but he is saying to them, look, if I'm lifted up, and I will be, then I'll draw everyone to me. The truth is, people are drawn by the cross. Churches have it all wrong when they decide that what they want to do is preach a social gospel. Just do a lot of good works and talk about a lot of happy thoughts. It may bring people to the church. I mean, the truth is, people will flock to a church that doesn't embarrass them or challenge them or hurt them, that only entertains them. Yeah, a lot of people will come to a church for that, but they aren't coming to Jesus. It's when he is lifted up that everyone's drawn to him. And today, as much as it was true then, it's the cross that makes all the difference. It's understanding what Jesus did. We can't apologize for the cross. We can't water it down. We can't act like it's anything less than it really was. And not only that, we need to be committed ourselves to live the kind of life that will take up the cross, that we're willing to die as well. Because when that happens, people are drawn to Jesus, and Jesus is who they need. Robert Schuller said in one of his books that Jesus was on a, a sanctified ego trip when he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Schuller said, how can you be on a bigger ego trip than that? But he said, God sanctified that ego trip by sending him to the cross. That's a horrible thing. And I, and I don't like to knock other people. And I, I'm sure he didn't understand, didn't mean it. What, you know, make any excuse you want for him. And and I'm not saying that other things that he's done haven't been good as well. But to say something like that in a book that he sent out to every pastor in the United States, and it's a book that was written to describe his theology, I think that's a horrible error, and hopefully he's figured it out since then, and I'm sure he has. But to suggest that Jesus was on an ego trip by saying, yeah, lift me up. No, it wasn't his ego. Nothing could be further from the truth. 
He was saying, I'm going to die for you. He's not trying to get attention. He's not trying to build up his self-esteem. And it said, this he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They're going, hey, when Messiah comes, he's supposed to reign forever. What's all this lifted up stuff? And who is the Son of Man? Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. He says, look, you don't understand what's going on. That's okay. Just stick with me. I'm the light. And while you have me, stick with me. You don't need to figure it all out. In later on, we're going to see in John 14 when he says, you know, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'll come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And, and Thomas goes, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So the idea is, do you understand it all? No. Is your theology always going to be completely straight? No. But the truth is, we just need to stick with him. Someone called Pastor's Perspective, and I wasn't doing the program today. I'll do it tomorrow. But they were asking, you know, how about people who are Catholics? And they believe in Jesus Christ. They've trusted him for their salvation. But they also believe that in some way they're going to have to go to purgatory and kind of sort of help pay for some of their sin. Are they really saved? Are they really believing in, in uh, you know, the, the true doctrine? And Brian Broderson gave a great answer to the question. He said, you know what? You don't have to understand everything to be saved. You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And the truth is, we're all totally mixed up in our theology. When we get to heaven, we're going to find out we were so wrong about so many things. And that's why we just have to say, he's the light. Let's hang on to him. Let's stay where he is. Over in the Psalms, it says, in thy light, I think it's Psalm 36, 9, in thy light, we see light. Stay in the light and you'll see everything that you need to see. And that's what Jesus is saying. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to be a genius. You don't have to be a theologian. Just stick with the light. Jesus would say, abide in me. Stick with me. And so then Jesus finished speaking and he departed and stayed away from the crowds at that point. But although he had done so many signs before them, they didn't believe in him. There were still a lot of people. They had seen someone raised from the dead. They had seen so many other miracles and yet many of them still rejected him and they still do today. In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That was from Isaiah chapter 53. Who would believe it? Isaiah said, and sure enough, and, and it said, therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah chapter 6, 
as he was talking about this blinding of the eyes. Now, a lot of people have an issue, and we don't have a lot of time to go into it, but well, why did God blind their eyes? But remember, they chose to not believe in him. So, as a result, therefore, verse 39, they could not believe. There's a point that you can get to where God just ratifies your choice, where he says, okay, you made your decision. That's what you want to do. You have free choice, but you make that decision. Now you're stuck with it. It's scary to think that someone could reject Jesus Christ long enough that ultimately then they couldn't repent. Or as the author of Hebrews said in chapter 6, impossible to renew them to repentance. What does that mean? I don't know. I have some ideas. We don't have time to go into it. The fact is here, they chose not to believe him, and as a result, their eyes were blinded. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, verse 42, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. This is kind of where we started at the beginning of the chapter. Do you, what do you value? Is it God or is it other stuff? These people who they knew in their heart, they had studied the word, they realized he was the one who was fulfilling prophecy and yet they're like yeah but I don't I'm afraid of what people are going to think of me loving God help us if we love the praise of men more than the praise of God if we're looking to people to affirm who we are and what we do we're in big trouble because you can't please people and when you're pleasing them the most is probably when you're compromising the greatest and so these people ended up missing out because they were more worried about what people thought than what God thinks. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. He's saying, look, this is it. I'm the one. I'm sent from the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can believe what you want to believe. You can reject what you want to reject. But understand this, I'm the light of the world. The only thing you're ever going to get is what you'll get by seeing me. And he said, I'm not even condemning you. If you don't want to believe, that's fine. You'll be judged by my words. You heard, you had an opportunity, you passed it up. But I'm not going to judge you. It doesn't take me to judge you. You're already condemned. And so, in his final word to the public, basically, his final message to the general populace, he's just going, it is about me. It's about my death. It's about following me wherever I take you. It's about the fact that I am the light, and you'll, ne you'll never understand anything unless you understand it in light of me and perspective of who I am. He offered himself like that. At this point, what happened to the crowd? The crowd who earlier in the chapter was saying, save now, Hosanna in the highest. In just a couple of days, would be crying out, crucify him. Because he didn't meet their expectations. He didn't do what they thought he ought to do as Messiah. 
it's a big mistake when we decide our commitment level to God based on whether or not he meets our, you know, perceived needs or whether he fulfills all of our dreams or he does things our way. If that's the case, then we're God. He's not God. Jesus said, look, I'm it. Follow me. Reject me. It's your choice. And that's the choice that we have, not just to decide whether to be Christians or not, but when we make a decision every day and throughout the day, many, many decisions that we make, am I going to follow him? Am I going to be in his light? Or am I going to just shine him? Am I going to move away from him? Am I willing to die or am I going to preserve my own well-being at the expense of obedience to him? And that decision, that trial, that decision, you know, that predicament is what we face throughout the day. It happens on a moment-by-moment basis. What are we going to do? Are we going to listen? Are we going to obey? Are we going to do what we want? Are we going to listen to the crowd? Are we going to try to please people? It's really simple. It's nothing complicated. But at the same time, when we don't make the right decisions, we mire ourselves in a mess. It's not really a question of whether you're willing to die or not. It's just a question of whether you want to die in a way that brings life or whether you just want to die for no reason at all. We're all going to die. I choose to die now. I want to die to my flesh. I want to forget who I am and how I can protect myself. And I want to throw myself, sacrifice myself to follow him, to stay in his light, to stay close to him. And I'll trust the Father to glorify me. Decide not to glorify myself. That's the option that's open to us. I hope and pray that we begin to learn, all of us, to make those decisions that are consistent with that kind of a worldview, with those kinds of values in mind. Following him, even if it's to the death. Let's pray. Lord, we don't like death. We don't like to think about it, and yet we think about it all the time. Most of us certainly don't want to volunteer for it. And yet you call us to follow you by taking up our cross. You tell us that we're seeds that need to be planted, and so God, plant us wherever we need to in order to grow, in order for your life to come forth from us. Use us. Speak to us. Help us to be willing to make whatever sacrifices are necessary to follow you, to stay in your light. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all.